0: This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8 5 am Melbourne, Australia. Step 3 is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Tonight we'll hear from Professor Kevin Anderson. He's from the Tyndall Centre in London. He's speaking to Kevin Kaners from the Elephant podcast, and thank you to Kevin for giving us this interview. I've chosen this because Professor Anderson is a radical voice. He doesn't fly. He's against offsets, and as an engineer, he says we haven't really thought through how hard even a Marshall Plan style of decarbonisation will be. He's especially vicious to the top 10% in our economies and says, if they lived as an average European does, we'd cut our emissions by 30% straight away. He says, I don't think we'll succeed, but we've got to try. That's honesty. Now we'll hear Kevin Anderson. So here's my interview with Kevin Anderson. I caught up with Kevin while we were in Paris for COP21. We got to the specifics behind what will need to happen in order for us to meet the goals that were set in Paris, but first I started off by asking Kevin if he's been to these COP meetings before. I've only been to
1: one, or one and a half I should say. Um, I, I, don't, I don't fly, and, and therefore I'm a bit limited to which ones I can go to with, with sufficient degree of ease. So you, so you don't fly? I've not flown for 11 years, no. Um, but well, you can, you can have a reasonable academic career still. As an academic without flying, it's challenging. There are certainly certain parts of my life, some of which are professional, some of which are personal, which are more difficult. Um, But ultimately, from a professional point of view, actually, I don't think it's that limiting. Depends exactly what your research area is. Uh, I still travel a reasonable amount, um, but when I go, I tend to plan it a lot more in advance, and I go for longer because it takes longer to get there. So I plan to do much more when I'm there. So I don't tend to go for short one day events or three, even two or three day events I generally tend to go I'll, I'll say well I, I can do this, this, this and then I'll plan something for say a week or a fortnight or maybe a month sometimes. And why have you made this decision? Basically two reasons but they're obviously both related. It's, it's a carbon dioxide emission reason. I work on climate change and one of the conclusions I draw from mine and others research is that those of us who are responsible for the lion's share of emissions have to make very dramatic changes to how we live our lives to reduce our emissions. Now that in itself you know, me making these reductions for my emissions is not necessarily important at at a bigger picture level but that I then try and discuss that with other people helps encourage a different way of of viewing these things so a lot of my colleagues take a different view towards their flying I know lots of other academics now who think quite differently about flying than they did before so what you do is you catalyse or you may catalyse a a, a sort of change a different mindset so I think you can as individuals I think you can actually you can be a real agent for change but it's not just what the emissions are from yourself it's actually how do you communicate that and you have to be quite vociferous and thick skinned and stubborn I think to, to push these things forward thick skinned thick skinned means that you're going to get a lot of criticism so have you oh yes oh yeah and particularly from from other high level colleagues who want to justify their incredibly carbon profligate lives who spend half their lives on planes um, and the more senior ones half their lives on business class planes as well and they, they, they don't like the idea you're questioning these things so some people find it very uncomfortable but also a lot of I mean, academics across the board don't find that easy because they regularly like to go to conferences There's, they would always say it's, it's, it's about the information and the knowledge. Actually, deep down, there is still something about flying as a positional good. It makes us feel good about ourselves because other people aren't doing it, um, even though the flying itself is often quite uncomfortable. So I, I, I still think it, it, it has some symbolism of the sort of luxury of a particular group of society uh, um, from the 1950s, even though the, in practice the flying is nothing like that anymore. But I think people who fly generally are people who are in a much wealthier category. Um, in society so it says something about us as individuals our success because we measure our success generally in terms of wealth
0: now i've kind of thought about this question myself um and i remember something that noam chomsky said i mean it's, it's a slightly different example because it's not about emissions but just in terms of like buying clothing or, or yeah, what, yeah. what we eat and uh he made the, the point that well sure to the degree that it doesn't take up all your energy you can try to make good choices but if you're spending all your time and energy trying to make the right decisions then it's kind of a waste of effort because the effort should be going into changing the default of the system. What, what do you think about that?
1: Well it is both but I don't, I don't see the system as separate necessarily from the individual. I don't We really like this idea of top down or bottom up. I agree with a lot of what Tom has said over many years on lots of issues but I, um, I, I don't particularly like the division of society into top down and bottom up. I, I see... If we do make the changes, if we then talk about that within our family group, our social group, our, our work community, if we discuss in universities with our you know, heads of school, our, our VCs, or with our companies, with our bosses and so forth, we can discuss these things we can try to um, catalyze and foster a system-level change. Ultimately, of course, I agree, you have to get that system-level change. But system-level changes don't just emerge from, from, you know, from nowhere. Something triggers them. And we could be those triggers. Now, we may well fail when we try to do this, but even when we fail in trying to catalyse change, we may have helped make someone else think about something differently, so we don't know where else their new ideas may may percolate out to the system. Um, in this sense, it makes all 7 billion of us stakeholders. Now, we may approach this differently. Some people may prefer to take oil companies to court or to battle with their politicians. Others may prefer to demonstrate change themselves and try to catalyze that within their local environment and then say, look, hey, we've managed to do this as a community, as a, as a university whatever it might be. And the divestment movement is a very good example. Yeah, it emerged from some sort of little nugget and then it spread and now it's become much more wide, you know, mainstream. It is becoming, you can see the divestment movement helping make a system change.
0: So I guess you're saying we need both strategies, or we, all types of strategies. We,
1: we do need all types of strategies, yes. Um, but I don't like the idea of seeing, that, seeing it's just about individuals. I don't think, in, really, in a complex system, individuals don't really exist. You know, we, we are all part of the system, so, and, and we, are, we have the ability to catalyze change within our system.
0: Now, one of the, uh, maybe you can explain it better and more fully than me after I'm done, but... So one of the primary things you do is you look at the, the official targets, like 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees, yeah. and, then, and then sort of reverse engineer it and say, well, what would that mean to get there? Can you just describe uh, a bit about what that work involves?
1: Yes. Um, well, we have these, ta- I mean, let's just take the 2 degree C target. We have a 2 degree C, and I, I first I don't like calling it a target. I see it's an obligation or a duty. If you look at the language that was wrapped around it, it was never about a target it was we will take the action not we may take the action we'll try and take the action it's we will take the action to keep the temperature below 2 degrees centigrade it doesn't say a 50-50 chance of or a 75% chance of exceeding it says below 2 degrees centigrade is
0: this the it's Copenhagen this, Accord you're it's referring Copenhagen to? the Copenhagen
1: Accord but it could be the Camp David Agreement it means almost every single year governments sign up to the same sort of language on the, consistent with science and on the basis of equity I always use the Copenhagen Accord because it's the neatest encapsulation of this but it's the same language that's used repeatedly so I don't see it as a target. Or, um, I see it much more as an obligation or a duty. And I think that changes your perception of, of how important it is. So, but let's be clear. The 2 degrees C framing is not something that scientists derive. It is something that's, that came out of civil society. Science informs that, that debate. Science can tell you what the impacts might be at certain temperatures in certain parts of the world. That sort of thing. But whether that set of impacts are seen to be dangerous or not is the role of civil society and the sort of messy process of international negotiations. And unfortunately, that massive messy process has been dominated, if we're blunt about it, by rich, white, generally men in the northern hemisphere. And we now have this target of 2 degrees C. And what we're hearing in, here in Paris is that there are many people around the world who think we should go, go for a lower target of 1.5. And, and they have a very legis- legitimate case for that. Um, nevertheless, we've, we have this agreement around 2 degrees C, even though, as I say, it's, 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 2 degrees C is likely to be dangerous and deadly for many of the communities it's then the role of people like me to take that and say well, what does science tell us about 2 degrees C what we'd need to deliver in terms of emission reductions now the science tells us very clearly in particularly the latest IPCC report that for a temperature rise across the century we have a set carbon budget a total amount of carbon dioxide that we can emit into the atmosphere and then we can quite easily as scientists we can start to translate to what does that mean in terms of Mitigation rates, how fast we have to reduce our emissions. We know what the current level of emissions are. We might make some assumptions about uh, emissions from, say, deforestation or from cement use, so we can then work out what's the emissions from energy, the bit I focus on. Um, so we may make certain sets of assumptions, but they can be very clear um, and obvious assumptions. You can adjust those a little bit up and down. But in the end of the day, we have a very clear carbon budget, and whenever you adjust these bits of detail, the same message comes out. We need rapid and deep reductions, probably bordering on the 10% per annum level
0: let me pick back up on that in a second but first let me get this idea of the carbon budget straight so basically we can calculate uh, more or less how much carbon we can collectively burn until we definitely go over that two degree line yes yes I mean there's a bit more to it than that but yes
1: If we're talking about stabilising atmospheric temperature of a 2 degrees C rise by the end of the century, we have a set of carbon budgets. Now, they vary a bit with the probability. Do you want a very good chance of it? So, uh, well, it's not really a very good chance, but the best that we're using is a 66% chance of staying below 2 degrees C, or do you want a 50-50 chance, or just a 30% chance of staying below 2 degrees C? And they all have a different carbon budget associated with them. Um, And that is the total amount of carbon dioxide we can emit into the atmosphere between 2011 and 2,100. Now, we could have done it earlier or later, but that's the the budget range they've given in the IPCC report. Um, And we understand that fairly clearly, and there is a very high correlation between temperature and the total amount of CO2 we put in the atmosphere.
0: So when you crunch the numbers and kind of look at the carbon budget that would keep us below this threshold, what do you come away with?
1: Okay, well, firstly, there's very little of the carbon budget left. Um, and the re- that's one of the reasons that some of the arguments that I'm making look a little bit different to some of the other arguments you may hear in Paris um, we're in down 2015 with the end of 2015 and the carbon budgets in the IPCC report are from 2011 so we've already emitted since 2011 150 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide we've put into the atmosphere now that's, that's 15% of the budget for a good chance of 2 degrees C gone so you always have to say well that's already spent which, you know, that, if you imagine it like a bank balance that, that 15 pounds out uh, of your 100 pounds in the bank, has now gone. So um, we then have to say, well, how much do we think we're going to use, in my case, because I focus on energy, I don't know how much we're we going to use for the emissions from cement. When we use cement, we, it emits carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, the process of using cement. Cement is about the second most used material on the planet. We use it for wind turbine foundations, for nuclear power foundations, for roads, for rail networks, Almost all of our buildings have cement bases to them and of cement in the construction. Industrialization or the development, if you want to use that term, for the poor parts of the world will also involve lots and lots of cement. So I then look at that, how that may play out in the future. And cement emits a lot of CO2. Or... Yeah, it does. Actually, you require a lot of energy to make the cement, but that could be low carbon. But the process emissions, the actual process, the chemical process of making cement releases huge quantities of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So I've tried to take account of those, being very optimistic about what the technology can do to change it. And so I take account of that. I also take account of the emissions from deforestation, which is still ongoing, even though we could do something about it. But nevertheless, it is ongoing and it is likely to remain ongoing for the next few years at least. So we make some estimate of all of these and then we reduce that from the carbon budget as well. So the carbon budget that we have in the end, um, the, the headline budget that comes from the IPCC is a thousand billion tons of carbon dioxide across the century. And we would say, well, that's really now no more than 650, you know, which is already a 35 percent reduction now that makes a big difference to what your analysis tells you and how much carbon are we burning a year right now about 36 37 something like that billion tons of carbon dioxide so at the, the current rate we use, it would take about under 20 years at current consumption rates it would be under 20 years and and then the budget would have gone completely we can also then look at where does that budget come from who who are the people you know, burning that, that carbon dioxide and we can understand that either from a country level which we understand it with a reasonable level of well, a very good level of detail so how much is it is in the eu or the us or the or china or tanzania or whatever it might be so we understand that fairly well and um, or the recent some very recent work that's been done by chancellor and piketty which actually says and also a report from oxford whilst we've been here says well who does it come from and they show that 50 percent of the emissions come from 10 percent of the population They show that the top 1% of emitters in the US have emissions that are 2,500 times higher than the bottom 1% globally. So you can then start to say, well, it's not just about national boundaries. It's actually about the people who are high emitters, and we can identify who they are quite well. So looking at those sorts of things can help you understand what the policies would have to be, either at a national level or beyond that, to think about how do you develop policies that focus particularly on these high-emission emitting people. So
0: that's the sort of work that I'm I'm involved with. So it it sounds like that involves a, a lot of thinking about power then.
1: It does. I mean, even if, you know, even if you only think about it from a mathematical sense, you can say, here's a particular group who have very high emissions, and if their emissions are so high, you think, well, it doesn't matter about the rest of the population, this is the group that really matters, then you know, that they are in of power, that they are very influential people, is almost separate. If you're serious about 2 degrees centigrade, I can sort of say, well, if 2 degrees C has to be achieved, uh, have a certain carbon budget, these people are responsible for the lion's share of that carbon budget, I have to say that we have to come up with mechanisms that will bring the emissions down from that particular group. So, it, if you like, the maths forces you, forces you into questioning these issues of power. Um, and it may well be that these particular groups, and it, well, it is the case, that these particular groups will respond to certain, certain types of policies differently to how other groups may respond. Which is one of the reasons I'm not a great advocate of a simple carbon price. Because? Um, because if you put, a, at least the way that most people have thought about carbon prices, if you put a carbon price on, on energy, the price of energy goes up. But people like me and the high emitters are inelastic to the price of energy. If our flights go up the price by 25%, so what? We still fly. If our car fuel goes up by 25%, we just drive the same large cars. We don't significantly change what we do. price of carbon goes up. That means the price of fertilizer goes up, because so that takes a lot of energy to make fertilizer. That means the price of food goes up, which means the poor people can buy less food. The price of energy goes up people in 20 percent of all houses in the uk are in fuel poverty that means they cannot heat their houses adequately in the winter their children have bron- bronchial conditions as a consequence if the price of energy goes up their children have worse bronchial conditions because they can't heat their house as well so there's a real equity implication of price so i think we have to think we have to, certainly have to think beyond a simple let's just add a carbon price and that that would be enough it will be very inequitable and actually i don't think it will really drive the emissions down very significantly in terms of behaviour and so forth, because most of the high-emitting people, like myself, um, are fairly inelastic to the price of energy. It may help us move our energy systems from, say, uh, coal towards gas, or if the price was high enough, maybe you know, towards renewables. But it has to be a very high carbon price. But then you sort of say, well, that has these other impa- impacts elsewhere. And that's why I'm saying the policies need to be much more subtle and nuanced than a simple carbon
0: tax Well, we talked to uh, James Hansen uh, the other night, and he was talking very specifically about doing a revenue-neutral yeah, carbon and a fee carbon and tax. Dividend. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think actually, oddly enough, although I've been I've really been quite opposed to a price mechanism for a long time, including emissions trading. I don't particularly like. Nevertheless, I think I think the the idea popularised by Hansen. I don't think it was his originally, but I mean that idea of fee and dividend. It's, it's when you initially look at it, it's quite attractive. The the idea that if you consume more energy and therefore emit more carbon that you would pay a large sum of money for that and then that money is distributed out evenly across all of society helps overcome some of the equity implications of, of a high carbon price. There is the practical part of that, can you imagine applying that globally? Could you imagine the US saying we're happy to see huge amounts of money going to Ghana or Nigeria or wherever else it would be. So I think at a global level it becomes quite challenging to know how you apply
0: that. But at a national level But at a national level
1: you could you could imagine it being played applied well I would like to think you could imagine it being implied at national level. I, I'd be interested in the, whether in the states that would be the case, whether in fact they're very influential. You can imagine you know, the, uh, the, the Republicans or indeed you know, the, the Democrats as well. These would be that very high emitting group. And if they're serious about 2 degrees C, the carbon price would be huge. It wouldn't just be... $10, 20 $50. I would think if we're serious about 2 degrees C carbon budgets, that carbon price would have to be in the hundreds and hundreds of dollars if you're, you know, to meet the carbon budgets that we have. And remember, it's the policy makers who would have to pay that very high carbon tax who would have to pass it as well because they're the ones that are going to be the high emitting group.
0: Well, what would you say to people who say that you know 2 degrees of global temperature rise, that doesn't actually sound like that much?
1: Well, coming from uh, the northwest of the UK, 2 degrees C sounds quite pleasant. We'd like a bit of warming, really. Um, but then you start to think, well, yeah, but, yeah, but what does it really mean globally? It, it, it is a very significant temperature increase. Two degrees C is a global average. That's about six degrees in the poles. So that means we will melt the Arctic for a considerable period of the year. So these are, it's a huge temperature rise. But also, we don't live in global averages. We live in weather. We don't live in climate. We live in weather. And he's to then ask, well, what would these global averages of 2 degrees C mean for the extreme weather events? They're the ones that cause us real problems. When we just see extreme weather, that would, there would be a climate signal on top of that. And you start to think, well, that would be a considerable additional flooding in some parts of the world, droughts, prolonged heat waves, changes in food patterns, changes in rainfall around the planet. And we all, we all have learned to live with our current climate. Our infrastructures have evolved. You look at something like a lot of Europe not continental Europe particularly the infrastructures have evolved over hundreds of years of a particular form of climate Um, and so when that climate changes and when you start to get these extreme weather events our infrastructures have not been developed for that and that's not just our technical infrastructures but our social infrastructures like our agricultural framing and all of that sort of thing so actually two degrees C is not this you know on a cold day in Manchester sounds quite pleasant it's nothing like that I mean it, it is a fundamental change in the shape of our planet, in many respects. If you head to something like four degrees C, it's almost like another planet. I mean, it's, it's living somewhere that looks very different and feels very different from the world in which we live. And also, we have to be careful that the two degrees C, in the northern hemisphere. We like to think that we can, you know, think that we can probably just buy our way out of it. I still think many of the poorer people in the in the in the northern hemisphere will still struggle at two degrees C. We'll certainly struggle a lot at two degrees C. But the poorer people in the climatically vulnerable parts of the world, 30 million people living on the coastal strip of Bangladesh within the metre of sea level rise and, and already susceptible to uh, typhoons that will increase in severity and possibly frequency with increased climate change, their lives are going to be made even, even more unbearable. So people who are already struggling with the current climate are going to find their lives much more challenged. Yeah, and let's be really clear and blunt about this. Many millions of people will die if we don't do something about climate change. You know, 2, 3, 4 degrees C, we are talking about millions and millions of people, possibly billions of people being affected, But and certainly it's the high temperatures and millions of people will be very seriously pe- affected and many of those people will die so whilst we might think we can get away with it in, in some parts of the US or in the, in the UK or in the Netherlands or wherever it might be you know, we have to accept the fact that many people will suffer the implications of this and are already suffering the implications of just a 1 degree temperature rise
0: one degree is what we have so
1: far? So one degree is about the warming that we've seen so far, yes.
0: So uh, if uh, we're talking about millions, potentially billions of people being affected, why do you think we've responded collectively with mostly a shrug?
1: Because, the, because we're not prepared to question our current economic and political paradigm. We have, we have this particular way of viewing the world, and that, that has become so dominant. It's more important than physics and maths so you know, it was almost like you know, set down by God this is how the world has to be and you must not question it and scientists feel constrained by the fact that they they feel they can't really question this so they were always trying to fine tune certain sets of assumptions to make sure it delivers within the current political paradigm our policy like it because it means they haven't got to put forward you know, very stringent policies we like it as a, as a scientific community because we even carry on flying to our nice climate change conferences all around the world the public like it because they can carry on going on their holidays and buy their cars and not have to worry about this sort of agenda um, you know, when we think about carbon, it's in every facet of our life. It's in the, it's in the dyes that make up my coat here. It's, it's how we travel to this event here. It's uh, in the varnish that's on the, on the seats that we're sat on now. Every part of our life has been influenced by carbon, fossil fuel-based carbon. And we're talking about trying to take that out of the system in 20, 30, 40 years, at the very outside, nearly 20, 30 years. This is a huge challenge. We've never faced anything like that, let alone faced it when you've got 7 billion people on the planet. Um, and you put all of that together, on, you know, tie that in with our current economic paradigm, no one wants to no one really wants to stand up and say i'll start to show some leadership on this i'll start to make the sorts of changes that are necessary and even the ngos have been co-opted really in this you know much of the time they're all part of the same quite upbeat optimistic view that technology in the future will solve the problem for us and as an engineer i really wish that was the case you know i spent a lot of my life working on large pieces of engineering equipment designing and constructing them and I, i wish we could simply engineer our way out this problem Engineering is an important part of getting out of this problem, but it is nowhere near enough. It has huge social, political, moral, and philosophical repercussions now because we've left engineering so Engineering,
0: like engineering you mean?
1: Um, just no, simply just just you know, engineering in terms of things like renewable energy. I mean, that's a big engineering task. You know, if, if you think you know, nuclear power is very low, it has lots of other problems with it, but you know, again, that's a big engineering task. Um, engineering uh, low-carbon transport networks, improving rail networks, building houses that are that are very low energy consumption or zero energy consumption, hopefully even generate energy. All of this is engineering that we should be doing. Um, I wasn't particularly thinking about geoengineering or negative emission technologies. I think they're, they're part of the problem. Um, but people, people think we can do all of this engineering very quickly. I, I was in an event today and someone was saying, well, we can just do it all with renewable power. I'm all for renewable power. But just be realistic. We cannot build enough renewable power to, um, to get us at, off, the, off the curve or down to the curve that would be necessary for two degrees centigrade. It's just not, we just can't physically do that. And therefore, in the interim, because we've left it so late, we have to reduce... Our levels of energy demand, the wealthy of us, have to make very significant reductions. If we started this in 1990, when the first IPCC report came out, a quarter of a century ago, and I don't know how old you are, but it's probably, you were probably very young a quarter of a century ago, we've had all of that time to do something about it. So virtually all of your life, people of like my generation have chosen to do absolutely nothing about climate change. A quarter of a century, worse than doing nothing, we've actually watched the emissions go up. So this year the emissions will be 60% higher than they were a quarter of a century ago. That shows how much we've cared about climate change. We have this carbon budget, we've squandered most of it by our complete inaction, and now we face these challenges that we don't like. You know, tough. If we're serious about 2 degrees C, if we're serious about trying to, you know, keep a world within which is a reasonable place to live, then what we face now is the repercussions of our complete inept failure over the last 25 years. And we just have to bite the bullet and make those sorts of changes. Or we, we pass on an awful legacy to the next generation. What are those naive assumptions about the world outside? Well, often about how fast you can put technologies in place. So a lot of scientists I engage with really... I get the impression that they've never really done any engineering. They've never been involved in any building anything. It takes a long time to build something. I think they think what they see in their textbook can be be delivered almost at the press of a button. But, you know, you've got to go through planning, you've got to recruit people, you've got to train people, you've got to find the right part of the country where you can actually try and do that. You've got to build the infrastructure around it. You've got to, you know, close roads to put large pieces of equipment in place. You've got to dig pipelines that go under sites of special scientific interest in the UK that have a certain legislation around them. So, all of that takes years. And you don't just do it in one power station or two power stations or 30 power stations or one or two new train lines. You're doing it across the full swathe of infrastructure, trying to convert it all to low carbon in 20 to 30 years. Now, that is a, a Herculean engineering task. And I think a lot of people simply underestimate that. So, so we can use carbon capture and storage. We can use you know, all of these other renewable technologies. They take a long time to put in place solar is interesting and it's been put out much quicker than than anyone expected and it's much cheaper and and I'm not saying we can't do things much quicker and I'm very much in favour of us shifting towards renewables like there's no tomorrow all I'm simply saying is even when we do the best we could possibly imagine it's nowhere near enough to get us to the 2 degrees C carbon budget and if we're serious about 2 degrees C therefore in the interim we have to reduce our energy consumption what would that look like? well if you think about people probably most of the people at the COP maybe not everyone but a lot of us here we're probably in that top 10% of emitters by and large and how did most people get here? I guess a huge number of people here flew. The ones who somehow think that they're somehow more valuable than our society, they'll have no doubt flown business class. And there'll be a few stars who no doubt have turned up here, at first class on private jets. All of that would have to go. You know, far fewer people would arrive here. We'd have to have virtual conferencing links back to other parts of the world so that people could actually engage via their own in their own countries. We'd have to develop those infrastructures for virtual conferencing. They were much more successful than the ones we have today. The people that did come here would have to come here by very low carbon means of transport, you know, by, or by ways that can at least be made low carbon, like trains, unlike planes, which really are locking ourselves into a very high carbon future. Um, when we go home, we would have to start living in smaller houses, generally, you know, the wealthier ones. We would we'd have to heat our houses probably less than we do, and maybe not air condition them as much. Um, we'd have to drive smaller, more efficient cars. We'd sometimes have to share, share lifts with people. A radical idea. Imagine a car with five seats having more than one person in it I mean it's almost impossible to imagine when you look at Europe nowadays or the US you have a big car It's only ever one person in it we have to find some way out of this that we we start to to learn to be more not necessarily more communal but at least more more aware of the energy we use when we try and do something at the moment when you think about when we travel short distances what do we do we get 90 kilograms in my case 93 kilograms of flesh you get a car that weighs 1500 kilograms and you drive 7 kilometers to pick up some groceries in 2015, can we not find a better way to pick up 10 kilograms of groceries than having to transport 1,500 kilograms of metal to a supermarket and then bring it back again
0: in all of this? I, I heard you say in a talk that uh, one of the primary things that people misunderstand is that it's not about targets even in like 2050. It's about right now, like the next five years that will determine whether or not we even have a, a chance of getting to two degrees. Oh, can is, you talk yeah. About, yeah. about that?
1: Okay, well, this, this comes back to this idea of carbon budgets for a long time people have actually focused on these long term targets like 80% by 80% 2050 by 2050 yeah so that's the sort of argument we've had in the UK we've had that enshrined in law in the UK an 80% reduction by 2050 an 80% reduction by not in my term of office that's what the politicians see it as or an 80% reduction by I can carry on flying as a climate scientist or as a member of the public or whatever you know. it feels far away it feels a long way away a technology in 2030 and 2040 will solve the problem for us the problem is that there's no science to that the science has told us very clearly we have a carbon budget if we'd started to act a long time ago, we, would have, we, could, we could have introduced more sort of gradual policies and so forth. We've squandered almost all of our carbon budget for 2 degrees centigrade, and therefore um, we now face these, these dire political repercussions that are about today. Because in five years from now, we'll effectively have wiped out any chance for 2 degrees centigrade. If we do not do something very significant from a policy perspective over the next few years that start to bring our emissions down, then the 2 degrees centigrade um, framework has basically gone. So we haven't got another five years to wait so whatever. Whatever the next the COP will be in five years' time for another grand event. Too late, you know. We ha- Paris is the last major COP where we have any opportunity to do something on two degrees C. I mean, not even there we're still talking about a very thin pro- pro- probability now. So the reason it shifted from a 20 an 80 percent reduction by 2050 to actually these carbon budgets is that the carbon budgets are the scientific way to think about temperature. Um, this way of delaying action until some technology will solve the problem in 2050. That means the carbon dioxide emissions keep rising in the atmosphere. And that's all that matters for climate change. The the level of CO2 in the atmosphere. So whether we we keep pumping CO2 in the atmosphere and make some big reductions in 2030 or 2040 or 2050, too late, the carbon dioxide is there, changing the atmosphere, changing the climate for the next 100 to 10,000 years. So, and because we've left it so late, we, we have this very small carbon budget now, and that's why it, it becomes, you know, it's incumbent on the current generation to do something about it in
0: the next few years. So if, if this is the case, though, why do we so seldomly hear this in, in the press or even at places like yeah. this?
1: We do hear it a little bit in the press, but not that often. One of the reasons for this is that this a particular technology, well, that's unfair, it's not a technology, it doesn't work as yet. There is a prospect of a future technology which will suck the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So that is now embedded in almost all of the main models that are informing governments. Not the, the detailed climate models, not the physics models that look at climate, but the models that combine that physics with economics and behavior and politics, and these are sort of what are called integrated assessment models. These models are the ones that inform the policymakers. They're called cost-optimizing models. They work out what's the cheapest way of holding the two degrees centigrade. And they almost all show the same thing, which is the technology we don't have now If that comes into place in 2050 to 2070 and sucks the CO2 out of the atmosphere, sucks the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, then we don't have to make such big changes today. So we're
0: pinning our hopes on a technology that doesn't really exist yet.
1: Yes, yeah. Um, oh yes, without a doubt. That's what, that is the underpinning of almost everything being been discussed in Paris. All the discussions about the INDCs and the INDCs are 2.7 degrees or 3 degrees. All of that is premised on assuming we can suck the CO2 out of the atmosphere a long time in the future. No one even talks about it now. That, that technology that does not exist is just assumed to work and it's to be completely normalized. And it, a lot of climate scientists are particularly the natural scientists and some of the physicists are really very concerned about this but they're not quite so vociferous yet in voicing that concern though so that is changing I mean here it's changing in the big climate change conference from the scientific community that was in June in Paris actually this year there are lots of people there really genuinely deeply concerned about these integrated assessment models and their reliance on this technology that doesn't exist a long time in the future Dr. Strangelove, I don't know if you've ever seen the film but I was thinking of it as a Dr. Strangelove technology it may work but the idea to assume that it will work is really very dangerous.
0: And what do you think the effect of this built-in assumption is? Is it is it dangerous that everyone has this built-in assumption?
1: Oh, it's incredibly dangerous because what it allows us to do is effectively use an incremental adjustment to, to business as usual. It allows us to carry on, smile at these events, pat each other on the back, and leave here on a plane to go home once we've got the taxi to the airport and live in our biggest homes. Because. Because negative emissions in the future, we just turn the dial up and that will suck the CO2 out. Okay, we have to make some adjustments. We have to gradually move towards renewable energy and maybe um, eliminate fossil fuels in the system in the next 70, 80, 90 years that some people have been talking about and the, from the IPCC have been talking about as well. You know, this doesn't fit at all with the 2 degree C framing unless you can suck the CO2 out of the atmosphere. So it fundamentally changes what we're prepared to talk about here. And, and even the idea that people say well, the INDCs are in line with 2.7 degrees, you know, that, that, is, that is repeated here in many venues. The people who are saying that never understand, or virtually never understand, that behind that is an assumption that huge amounts of carbon dioxide are are going to be sucked out of the atmosphere in years to come. And a very common technology for that planned technology is something called BECS Biomass Energy Carbon Capture and Storage. And they're going to plant places like, you know, they could be huge. Some of these scenarios assume places as big as India or larger, planted with biomass and captured every year and then harvested every year transported around the world to power stations, burnt in power stations, the carbon dioxide captured, liquefied, pressurized, and put down into a reservoir somewhere under the, under the ground and held there for a 1,000 plus years, safely without leaking, more than a 1,000 plus years, safely without leaking. That's the premise. That's what we're assuming is going to occur. At the same time, we're trying to feed 7 to 9 billion people on the planet. The aviation sector thinks it's going to use biomass for flying the planes. The shipping industry thinks it's going to use biomass for powering its ships. The car industry is using, already using biomass um, and the chemical industry thinks it will use biomass for um, chemical feedstock so you've got all the sectors thinking oh we're going to use this biomass this magical fuel that's going to save, save the world you know? um, and people need to sit back and think we've got a round planet we've got changing temperatures we've got 79 billion people we've got, you know, we have this changing climate is this in any way realistic? and lots of the people now lots of scientists are saying no it's not and there are some papers now coming out suggesting this looks incredibly dangerous set of assumptions to, to build our current policies on
0: is this what you mean when you talk about how uh, there's a bias, even within the scientific community, of kind of tweaking the numbers so that we get a conclusion that is palatable, that we can yes. digest?
1: Yeah, very much so. I mean, there are a number of ways we do it, but that is the most powerful one that is used. I mean, another one is that we, we assume global emissions will peak very early. So quite a lot of the scenarios in the IPCC assume global emissions have already peaked.
0: Really? Yeah.
1: Oh, yes, yeah, a lot of them I mean a lot of the scenarios. And the UNEP gap report, um, and a lot of the scenarios there have assumed global emissions have already peaked so you know, we have this one where we use lots of negative emissions we also assume a very very early peak or possibly a peak in the past which is more challenging um, there's often a, a very naive assumption on the uptake of technologies how rapidly they can penetrate the system now they can do a lot with technologies but we have to be more realistic about how they can be factored in and what, what that would actually mean you know, we, do we have enough people trained to do these things or can we, have to move, can we move them off other things that they're doing and move them on to you know, pushing forward a very low carbon agenda I just don't think people really think this through on a on a sort of system level basis. They do it with their algorithms and with their computer models and their equations. And I think there's, there's a real danger in that. It's, it's non, I call it non-contextual. You know, they, they don't really step outside and look at the world within which they live and say, well, how would, you, how would you deliver that here in the next few years? But it allows us, by adjusting those assumptions, it allows us to fit within the current political discourse. And again, that's the one that you hear. You hear that sort of language, green growth. You know, we can have our cake and eat it. You hear that repeatedly. It's just rubbish, you know, win-win opportunities. There are some win-win opportunities here and there, but by and large, we're going to have to make such large changes that the way we would normally measure these sorts of successes in our society you know, would, would not be successes. You know, we would measure that as being not so positive. So things like economic growth, we will probably have to question whether that's viable in the short to medium term for the wealthy parts of the world. Certainly wealthy people within the wealthy parts of the world, that is unlikely to be viable. Well, almost certainly will not be viable in the 2 degree C framework. Yeah, you know, people will have to take a significant economic hit. Their positional goods, the way that they see themselves in society, will have to change. Now, it doesn't mean we have to have a low quality of life. We can still have a very high quality of life. But those adjustments, at the moment, we would measure those things as not, or see those things as not being particularly positive.
0: I'd be curious what it's like for you personally to work in this area, uh, especially without a lot of the comforting assumptions uh, that other scientists or or people in the uh, environmental movement use. I imagine. Uh, that can't be, be easy. Cause just thinking about that last point, well, how likely is it politically that the most powerful people and nations in the world are suddenly going to say to themselves, we can't grow our economies anymore?
1: Yeah, very um, few of them. Um, and that's partly because we've, we've become dominated by a particular group of economists. That, that, this wasn't the same. 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, they dominate every facet of our lives now, whether whether that's in, in governments, whether it's in universities, whether it's in our schools. I mean, everywhere our lives are dominated by a particular way of looking at the world. And that, and that, but that's new. That is constructed. We don't have to have it like that. There are ecological economists out there look at the world differently. There's people like Herman Daly, very influential, who used to be the World Bank, Stiglitz of this world, or the Piketty of this world. There are people questioning some of these things. So it is being questioned a little bit now, this, this particular economic paradigm that we have. But what is it like for you personally? For me
0: personally, because I mean, you obviously have to contemplate a lot of scary scenarios. Yeah,
1: and there are two ways. firstly, from a personal point of view, in terms of being isolated, I don't feel quite so isolated. I feel there are lots of other people now saying these sorts of things. Now, often they won't say them publicly, and they'll use a form of language which is slightly different to mine. I quite appreciate the fact that you have to have a yeah. We all communicate in the way that we think is most appropriate for us. I do think it has to fit with the science. Um, And, you know, some people might argue my language is slightly more colourful. I think the adjectives I use fit very well with the numbers. Um, So I don't feel I'm misusing the adjectives. I think, you know, if numbers look dire, then I would use use the adjectives that say it's dire. Um, But other colleagues find that slightly harder to do, and they will, you know, use slightly different language. But nevertheless, there are quite... I mean, the event it was at today, I think some of the colleagues on the the stand... I don't think five years ago they would have said the things they were saying. Um, And I hear that from not just from... Early career academics, I hear that from quite a lot of senior academics who are saying things that are really quite challenging for society. I mean, you know, as a very clear example of someone who's held up in high esteem in places like Germany, and that's and, and, well, across Europe, a bit like John but now is saying things that you know, are very difficult for our current economic framing of society. Um, you, know, you could argue the Pope's coming out and saying these things as well. So you know, there are very senior people saying these sorts of things. The IMF, you know, pointing out the huge subsidy for fossil fuels, the, the International Energy Agency coming out and saying we're aiming for six degrees C, that's our trend line, and we're going to, that's devastating consequences for the planet. The IEA saying that. So these, there are established figures and institutions that are saying things that are fairly radical, as well as the sort of more detailed stuff that I, and increasing numbers of people are saying. So it's much easier now than it was two or three years ago. Two or three years ago, I found it very difficult. So it's, it's not too challenging for me from that point of view. The way it is challenging is actually trying to live a world, live in a world, where, I mean, the flying one is not easy for me. I think we should have to accept the fact it will not be easy. Um, academically it's, it's less of a problem it doesn't mean that I spend a bit more time away from home than I would like to do and it mm-hmm. takes a lot
0: more organisation and what about anxiety for, for the future
1: oh yeah, I mean, yeah, oh yeah I mean there's a lot of that um, but I mean yeah, yes and I think but a lot of people in NGOs and elsewhere feel that as well but, and, but it's a, it is a a rich middle class person's anxiety. You know, a lot of people have anxiety around the globe and they're worrying about the, you know, where the food comes from tomorrow or what's going to happen to them two weeks down the line or that huge flood in India now. That's what they're dealing with. And so,
0: it's still not, contemplating the end of the world, essentially. It
1: is, but I'm not going to worry about my Western anxieties. I think I, can, I, I can deal with those. Um, you know, I think a lot of other people have got a lot more immediate anxieties, which maybe not the end of the world, but it's the end of their lives or their family's lives or at least their reasonable livelihood. So you know, I'll, I'll take that hit because I work in this particular area. I, I, I see these things. I don't find that a problem. But the personal things are like, um, I have a lot of, I'm a keen rock climber a lot of my rock climbing friends go away climbing for weekends or for the odd week here and there to Morocco or to somewhere in Norway for ice climbing in the winter I can't join them because I just jump on a plane and off they go so that has affected my friendships there um, uh, I have a, an uncle who I'm very close to who lives in Australia a lovely man I will never see him again you know, that's not easy he's, he's old, not very well I would love to see him I've not seen him for 11 years um, and I will likely never see him again I've only talked to him or Skype him or whatever it might be and that is not easy. So personally, that is very challenging. But if I go to see him, unless I can get there slowly, maybe if he's still around when I'm retired, then maybe I'll try and go to see him. But if I was to fly there, the emissions are so high from that, from that particular journey, I think, well, that will have an impact on poor people living in Bangladesh. Now, I don't know who, which one it will be over there, but it will significantly add to the burden for these people. And I can't justify that. So therefore, I, I, I can't go and see him.
0: But couldn't you say that because you're working your whole life on, on climate change and trying to promote the types of actions required that that then it's justified in a way?
1: And lots of environmentalists say that, lots of my scientific colleagues say that. In fact I've not met anyone who doesn't think or well, very few people who don't think that. So somehow I talked I mean, I found it very depressing. On the second day I was here I talked to a really good scientific colleague of mine, an excellent an excellent scientist, and he said um, I can justify flying here from a provincial town in the UK because I do good work on climate change. Yeah, I just think, I, I've met anyone who doesn't think differently. The business community thinks it has to fly and has to have a largest amount of carbon dioxide because it feeds into um, prosperity in our society but it allows us to buy more expensive renewables as they see it. The aviation sector thinks it's the exception. Important for growth, cultural development around the world. The shipping industry essential for moving of goods around the world. So there's two sectors that shouldn't be included. And in fact, outside UNFCCC have not submitted any INDCs and are under almost no control for their CO2 emissions. But then there's the climate scientists who think they should carry on because, hey, we're doing really good things. There's the environmentalists who think they're doing really good things. There's the business leaders who think they're doing good things. The politicians have to fly around the world because they're doing really good things. Where is this person that's going to compensate for everyone else's emissions? You know, I always joke that it's it's a small pet shop in Rotherham that's going to compensate for the rest of the world who they think they're so important, they, are allowed, they should be allowed more emissions than anyone else. So I think we have to be very careful about this particular ruse that we use to justify our... It's a cognitive dissonance issue. Uh, you know, we, we know deep down that's not what we should be doing, but that's quite hard to deal with psychologically. So we make, it, make out this point that we are the particularly important people. Uh, I don't think I'm that important, but I should be flying around the world to try and solve climate problems.
0: So you, and you've, uh, on that note, you also take a very negative stance to carbon offsetting can you explain why
1: yes why can't,
0: why can't I pay for my flight by planting trees somewhere else yeah. indulgences so, so you don't think the science behind it is, is well, no,
1: correct no, no there, there's quite a number of reasons against offsets and I'm not completely opposed to to them I, mean, I think the way they're seen here certainly I am um, so say you plant trees right? so you, you fly somewhere you fly to you know, know, New York to Paris to come to this conference um, and in doing that you plant a few trees your flight is guaranteed to emit a carbon dioxide because you're on the plane. You've also sent a very clear market signal that says, "Please buy some more planes and build more airports." And those cannot be made low carbon in the future. And you're going to compensate for that by planting a few trees, which you hope will suck the CO2 up over some period in the future. But that's, of course, that period in the future. How do you know that's going to happen? How do you know are not going to be a movement in pests that mean those trees get killed by changing climate and bring around new pests? That's happening in the UK. A lot of pests are lots, for lots of reasons. Lots of trees are dying in the UK now, and because of I'm not saying because of climate change, but because of changes in their natural environment, one way or another. Um, how do you know that, that in 20 years from now, there's going to be some sort of problem with fuel in one part of the world where these trees have been planted? They get chopped down and converted into, you know, just,
0: just fuel for people to use. So it's the uncertainty about, uh, yeah, about it?
1: Yeah, but the uncertainty is there. Um, so, but it's more than just the uncertainty, because... What you have done is put the CO2 in the atmosphere and sent a market signal to expand that particular high carbon form of energy. And what you've done to try and compensate that is plant a very uncertain tree somewhere else. So they're not comparable. That tonne in the tree, which is very uncertain, is not the same as the tonne you've guaranteed to have it or the tonne of CO2 that you're almost guaranteed to have embedded in the, in the expansion of the industry that you've supported. At every level, scientifically, mathematically and morally, it is reprehensible to be doing that.
0: So you'd say it's... Worse than doing nothing.
1: Oh, it's my, in my view, it's much worse than doing nothing. Yeah, yeah, at, at lots of levels. They're not just the scientific, the scientific way, mathematical way, in terms of carbon dioxide emissions, but also the moral framing that that is an appropriate thing to do.
0: You mentioned that you worked in the oil patch. Yes, I mean
1: I, I, I left school at 16 and worked, uh, did an apprenticeship as an engineer in the merchant navy, working on tankers and gas carriers and. Container ships, and then later on, I did did an engineering um, degree, and then I went to work in the oil industry. It basically, it basically, as a design engineer, designing offshore oil platforms, and then in the um, what's called the hook up and commissioning, the construction of the oil platform offshore, and then partly in the operation of the oil platforms as well. So that was my sort of engineering history. Um, but I'm, I'm I was always interested in energy and environmental issues, right from being a child, in next door to a nuclear power station, where my dad used to work as a as a fitter. So I used to work on the reactor. And I was interested in those issues right back in the 1970s um, when people weren't thinking about climate change then, but we're thinking about alternative energy, it used to be called. So we think thinking about how would you go move away to alternative energy sources. So it's a long history. All my life I've had an interest in energy, um, really, thanks to my dad. And for some reason I had an interest in environmental issues, and I don't know where that quite came from. But that persisted. Whether I was working on the ships or whether I was working on the oil rigs, I was always involved in trying to make sure they did things as cleanly as possible. So we didn't release CFCs, which were a big issue when I was on the oil platform. Trying to see how can I restore the CFCs and put them back in the system when we're doing maintenance work. So I was always trying to look at it like that. And then I start, thought this climate change issue came along. This looks really serious. Tried to understand the science. Thought I need to go back to university and find out more. And I've been working on it ever since. What year was that? Ninety. I think it was in 19- early 1990s. From so really
0: early on when it was... Oh, yes, yeah.
1: yeah it was, it was the very early days of sort of climate change being seen as a big... I mean, obviously people had worked on it before. But science, when it was becoming a vogue issue, I was starting to read quite a lot about it. And I thought, actually, I don't know that much about climate change. I need to find out more. I did as much reading, reading as I reasonably could that was available in 1990. Um, and But thought, no, I need to go back to university and find out a bit more detail. And so that's what I did, and I've been working on it ever and,
0: since. And was there, was there like an article or a, something that you remember interacting with that really got you... Th- thinking or concerned about it
1: no I don't think it was and actually I don't think my life has ever really run like that there's been one thing that's triggered occasionally maybe but generally it hasn't worked like that it's, it's a sense of something so it, it, you know you read bits and pieces and you think about it a bit more and I always think that thinking is very important I get that with students yeah. don't, the first thing is not to read the first thing is to think so I, I, I was thinking about a lot of issues then and trying to read about it and I came to a judgment that this, this is likely to be an important issue and the studies I did at university when I went back again looked to me that this was a very, very important issue. And you certainly
0: su- made the, the right bet on that one. Uh, well. Unfortunately.
1: Yeah, y- yes, yes, unfortunately. I mean, I, I genuinely wish the sceptics were right. I think I wish the sceptics were right much more than them. I, I, would, I would very happily pack up my job and go back to doing something else I would much rather do. I really enjoy, miss my engineering. I really enjoyed doing it. Um, I feel now I've developed a sufficient expertise in this area that I feel I'm sort of obliged to sit, stick with this area. I don't want to be doing this. I don't want to be in COP. I don't enjoy working on climate change particularly, I have some good colleagues, but it's not, it's not the sort of terrain that I feel particularly happy with, but I think it's a very, very important subject, and I'm lucky enough to have a set of expertise that, that has a role to play in it, so I feel some sort of moral obligation to work with in this area now. But you know, that's the way it is, I still count myself, I'm, I'm a lucky Westerner living a very comfortable life, so
0: I can't complain. You mentioned how important it is that we peak, you know, basically as soon as possible to have even a, a chance. I just read a, an article in the BBC yesterday, using research from East Anglia, that said that we might have peaked this year, or there might might be down. Have you had a chance to look at that? And oh, what yes, do you? have I
1: have. Yeah. In fact, that was a, the side event we ran today, was with with the Global Carbon Project. My colleague Corinne Lequeirer works with the Tyndall Centre and the Global Carbon Project. She was involved in that. She did the press release and so forth yesterday, and we talked with Glenn Peters from Cicero in Norway, um, who was heavily involved in that project.
0: So that sounds like great news, right?
1: Oh, it's excellent news. It's really good news. Um, and let's hope it lasts. But when you then ask the same people, who are the, you know, the detailed analysts who understand it, you ask Corinne or you ask Glenn whether this looks like a, a, a change in the, um, in, in the trend or at least does it look like a real peak, they don't think this is a peak in emissions. They think it is a, for various sets of quite detailed reasons, but significantly related to coal use in China and so forth, and, and also weather and, and hydro generation in China, it's brought the emissions growth that we've been seeing, which typically has been about 2 to 3% per annum during this, since the millennium, really, and it's brought it down to pretty much flat line for the last couple of years. But it's only about two years worth of data at the moment. So and that's partly because of economics, you know, the economic slowdown in China. It's partly because um, they've had a very lot, large amount of rainfall which helped them with hydropower. But at the same time, they've built some more hydropower as well. And they've also closed some of their coal-fired power stations down. So you put all that together, and it's because China such a large part of the global Emission profile, then um, emissions have slowed down. You then say, "Well, do they think that's going to be long term? They think the, the conditions that that have brought that about will not persist for a long period of time. Though, it, it still, I think it's fair to say they also say it's unlikely to go back up to the sort of two to three percent per annum growth rate. But it's likely to go back up to the sort of one percent or maybe a bit more." then they say that it could we actually rise again by the time we got into the 2020s if, say, India became the new the new China. So as China moves towards a service economy, the rest of the world says, well, who's going who's to manufacture the goods for us now? Maybe it's going to be India or Indonesia or somewhere else. So, um, at the moment, yeah, they're very hesitant to suggest this is anything other than a small dip. But a very, you know, a very welcome dip. And let's hope it. Let's hope it is at the peak in emissions. Let's hope it is a new trend. But I think we have to be very careful about taking two years worth of data and extrapolating it. And if we could if we could have this as the peak and if we could bring our emissions down very rapidly that would make things a little bit easier but still with how, however you play it out it's still going to be a very a very hard ride for a series about 2 degrees C
0: Well uh, to end off I'd be curious what gives you um, hope and uh, resilience going forward given all the uh, you've kind of given us a lot of bad news today Kevin um, so so you're still working very hard on this issue obviously you're not giving up so what gives you resilience going forward?
1: Well it's more of a moral framework really I mean I, the science is sufficiently uncertain um, around exactly what, you know, what budget hits and what temperature. We know we, we know in the reasonable realm, but we must not overplay the, the exact precision we have in the science. So there's a little bit of flexibility in the science. Not a lot. I mean, the science is all well understood, and, and, and as far as I can tell, it's completely right. I mean, we, have it, we, we well understand climate change. We, we very clearly know... Why, the emissions are go- why carbon dioxide emissions are going up in the atmosphere we know from what sources they're going up and we know that it links to temperature all that stuff we know but exactly what the temperature rise will be for the, for the exact amount of carbon dioxide emissions there's some, there's some uncertainty there so that helps us um, we also have an opportunity to make the big political changes that would be necessary so these are, these are all very small you know, the door is slightly open on the science the door is slightly open on the politics um, yeah, there's not much hope of us pushing hard against any of these but if we did push really hard we might push them quite a lot further open and we could perhaps then move to a different place you know, a different paradigm, a different way of thinking of these issues and that's what that, my, where my hope is really is that whilst that thin thread of hope remains and it's very thin, if I was a betting person the chances are that we're going to fail but whilst it remains it's incumbent on people like me to do my damnedest to try and make sure we, we bring about those sorts of changes the necessary changes we are already too late for one and a half degrees C and there are a lot of people talking about it here and I think I'm pleased that they are talking about it and I've had discussions with my colleagues about whether that's a good or a bad thing but I think politically I think it's important that they're pushing hard for a lower temperature um, I don't think you can scientifically achieve that now I think it's beyond I mean, our carbon budgets have been blown for 1.5 degrees C as far as I can tell um, and that means that we're aiming at 2 degrees C and that means a lot of people who have nothing to do with the problem will, be, will suffer the repercussions of our Profligate use of carbon and knowing profligate use of carbon. So we have effectively in the West, oh, the wealthy part of the world anyway, we've been like a meteorite that has hit the planet knowingly, with a conscience. So, or without a conscience maybe. We've knowingly hit the meteorite, but without a conscience. That's a better way of seeing it. And I think that's wrong. I, think I find that morally, you know, just not, not appropriate to do that. And if I have some ability to try to change that a little bit, then that's what I try and do. But it isn't one of false hope. I don't think we're going to succeed, but I don't know we're going to fail. And that thin thread, that thin difference between thinking and knowing is, is what keeps me working on climate change.
0: Was oh, that what you mean when I saw in the talk that you said that it comes from dealing with just how bad things are, that we'll get any hope if there is any to get?
1: Well, that, that was saying, that was the thing as very cool. That was saying that until we recognize how bad things really are, until we, until we recognize the situation we're in now, so it's a bare assessment of the scale of the challenge we face. Because a lot of people say, I'm, I take away all, the, all this hope. I'm not taking away hope in my view. What I'm doing is trying to offer real hope. You have to say, where are we today, exactly, precisely, bluntly. We need to understand the challenges we face. And then we can say, well, what can we do about it? But at the moment, we're not even prepared to accept where we are today. We pretend we're somewhere else already. So, you know, in Paris, we should recognize that we, you know, I always say we need 20 minutes or 20 seconds without, to bow our heads in shame. We've had a quarter of a century of doing nothing about climate change. So all the great and the good turning up here, and people, academics as well, in our suits and our tweed jackets. Let's just us remember that we have fundamentally failed the poor and impoverished around the globe. We will have, our failure will have resulted in many, many deaths and certainly very many impoverished lives of poor people elsewhere who had nothing to do with climate change in terms of causing it. And I have to suffer the repercussions of our failure. And I do think a a little bit of humility, a little bit of... Holding our heads in shame and then standing upright, put our shoulders back, and saying, "Right, let's. What do we need to do?" Is what is that's how we should start. But we're not prepared to even do that yet. We're not prepared to acknowledge where we are and what we've done. And that's my point about you know hope only useful hope only emerges if we're honest about the situation we face today. And we're not prepared to do that yet.
0: And and last point, people who've been listening, you know, obviously you're saying we need to all reduce our emissions. Once people have done done that, I mean, what else What else would you well, say people well, need to two do? Two
1: things. First, I'm not saying we all have to reduce our emissions. I'm saying that those of us who are responsible for the lion's share of emissions have to reduce our emissions.
0: Yeah, that's, that's certainly not it everyone. It's probably, yeah, most most of our listeners. Well, well maybe, uh, yes,
1: okay, I don't know who your audience, but it may well be most of your listeners. Well, it's not only reducing their emissions, it's about reducing their emissions and arguing with their friends, their colleagues, writing to their politicians. It, it is making the case way beyond just what they do themselves. But actually, if you don't do it yourself, and argue elsewhere, you lose credibility. So I think you have to demonstrate action yourself and make the case elsewhere. And the other thing, of course, is that we also have to argue for a rapid shift away from fossil fuels. Fossil fuels, I mean, a very blunt message from this, fossil fuels have to stay in the ground. 80 to 90% of all the current reserves need to stay in the ground if we're serious of 2 degrees C. So we have to be arguing for that. So the point I made earlier today, countries like Norway, the UK, and someone else made the point about Australia, these are countries with huge renewable energy opportunities. Wealthy populations and very well educated. They should be producing no fossil fuels. So the oil and gas in the UK should stay in the ground, and no more shale gas in the UK or development shale gas. The Norwegians should close down their North Sea oil industry, and the, the Australians should stop producing coal. We all know that it's fossil fuel use that affects climate change. Not it doesn't matter how many renewables you've got. If you're still burning the fossil fuels, then that's no good. So if rich countries like ours aren't prepared to do that, then we we have no hope. So that's that's the sort of. Scale of change that we need, and it's incumbent on your listeners, I would argue, if they think climate change is important, to not only make the changes themselves about how they use energy, but to be pushing really hard for their governments to move away from a fossil fuel-based economy.
0: Well, Kevin Anderson, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with Kevin Anderson, professor of energy and climate change at the University of Manchester, and the co-director of the Tyndall Centre the UK's leading climate change research organization. And that's all for The Elephant this time. The Elephant is put together by myself, Kim Keyners, along with Matthias Gutz and Christina Peters, and it's made with support from the Climate Kick, that's KIC, Alumni Association. It's a community of entrepreneurs and young professionals working on creating a climate-resilient society.